able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth, made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. In his book, Night, which was a memoir of time spent in Auschwitz, Elie Wiesel offers up his impression of the horror of his first night in the camps. He said, never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, that turned my life into one long night seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a silent sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence that deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dream to ashes. Never shall I forget those things even were I condemned to live as long as God himself, never. If you've seen the pictures and heard the interviews, watched the documentaries, you know something about the atrocities perpetrated on human beings by other human beings in the Holocaust. And they all defy description. I mean, people have attempted to wrap the horror in words, 
But a description as crucial as that is can never quite touch the depths of despair and darkness at the bottom of the abyss. Because our words can never quite convey the depravity humans are capable of. I mean, we're always in danger of stumbling back into the darkness, and there's, there's just too much writing on it. Viktor Frankl, himself a survivor of uh, the Theresienstadt camp, wrote, So let us be alert, alert in a twofold sense. Since Auschwitz, we know what humans are capable of, and since Hiroshima, we know what's at stake. But the Holocaust and the attempted extermination of the Jews by the Nazis it didn't come out of nowhere. Right? Anti-Semitism had seethed beneath the surface of European culture for centuries. I mean, no matter how long a Jew had lived in a particular country, they were always considered somehow alien, somehow other. They were dehumanized, called vermin, seen as a social disease to be eradicated. Their presence was viewed as an invasion, reducing Jews to a, a, a pestilential plague made it much easier for ordinary, otherwise cultured people to collaborate in destroying their neighbors who were Jews. If not actively, then certainly by their silence. Now, in our own country lately, we've seen the rise of political illiberalism, growing wave of people convinced that the country's fallen into ruins and must be saved from the gathering horde of the other. The New York Times just printed an interesting conversation between two sort of long-standing and thoughtful conservatives, uh, Brett Stevens and David Brooks, about their, their thoughts on the descent of their former political party into something that they no longer, by their own admission, even recognize. They offer multiple theories for this decline, which boiled down to their essence, essence amount to something like an increased uh, radical populism, right? uh, a shift from the emphasis on the reform of government to an almost complete rejection of government, or, or at least a complete rejection of a government the populace believes has been stolen from them, which has resulted in multiple attempts to undermine and overthrow state and national governments, right? I mean, they, they lament the loss of a proud conservative tradition do Brooks and Stevens. They regret the loss of a once proud intellectual tradition with its emphasis on practical reform and maintaining institutions like the Senate, the Office of the Presidency. And they're frightened by what they both describe as a cesspool of nihilists conducting their very own clown show. What their <clears throat> discussion about the collapse of political conservatism in this country only touches on, but which I'm convinced is clearer and closer to the heart of the breakdown is the fear and hatred that follows closely behind. 
Brett Stevens does mention that so many of the people who make up this new radical populism aren't conservatives, in his words, but illiberal con artists. But I mean, overall, they don't pay sufficient attention to one, I think, crucial reality that lies at the heart of this deterioration. Our country has been undergoing this vast and unsettling, to many, shift from a majority white, straight country dominated by Christianity to a majority minority queer country in which Christianity has been on the decline for three generations. Put more simply, there are a lot of people in this country used to living in a world built almost exclusively for them, and as a result, they fear that this world is going to be taken away from them and will be replaced by a new one where they just don't have the same kind of control. Now, a significant portion of the people in this country are, is terrified that they'll soon wake up to find a country they no longer recognize because it will be populated by people they've historically felt superior to <laughs> because of race or ethnicity or gender, religion, immigration status, disability, sexual orientation, gender expression. And these disillusioned souls are sure that the only way to protect the lives that they believe they are owed is by marginalizing, harassing, discounting, and dominating people who don't look, love, or pray like them. Apparently, some lessons from history are beyond us to learn permanently. But none of our cruelty toward Jews, toward people of color or women, queer people, foreigners, none of that would have surprised first century Palestinians. Raj Nadala <clears throat> observes that the Roman Empire had been subjecting people to darkness and death for generations. It made darkness and death integral parts of the society and then tried to normalize them. Now this dark pit of Roman oppression is the backdrop for our gospel this morning. Jesus had earlier been baptized by John the Baptist before being led up by the Spirit, the text says, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You remember that story, right? The temptation of Jesus. You remember what the nature of the temptations Jesus faced were? They were political. Seeing Jesus without food, the devil says, <clears throat> looks like you're I don't know, hungry. I mean, if you really are the son of God, you, if you are the one who's going to help fix the problem of poverty and hunger that Rome has visited upon the peasants of this land through evictions and foreclosures, well, then why don't you do something useful? Command these stones to become loaves of bread, and then you can feed everybody. And that's a great brand to carry with you into a new political career. No luck. Jesus doesn't bite. So then the devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and says, you know, look, if you really are the son of God who's going to lead the people to liberation, well, then you're just going to have to get serious about marketing. I mean, your PR team, well, it just ain't getting it, if you want to know the truth. 
I mean, here's how to fix that. You throw yourself off the top of this building, and God will send angels to bear you up, and it's going to be epic, I promise you. Imagine the spectacle that would create, right? I mean, you want to start a great following, there you go. No, Jesus isn't buying it. So finally, the devil brings Jesus to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil turns to him and says, okay, if, if you're really serious about this stuff, if, if you really care about the suffering people of your land, I'll tell you what, I'm going to help you out. You bow down to me, and I can make not only the Romans go away, but I can also make you the new emperor to take his place. I mean, Caesar's big, but I can make you bigger. How's that sound? Now, again, Jesus withstands the call to do politics the way the rest of the world does politics. I mean, he's going to go up against the Romans, all right. But he's not going to do it riding in a big Secret Service motorcade. He's not going to be flanked by people and wrap around sunglasses, talking into their wrists. And there's not going to be no, no gold-plated jets for Jesus. I mean, he's going to go about this whole thing differently. Now, the first thing Jesus hears after he makes his way back from his interview with Old Scratch out in the desert is that John the Baptist has been arrested by Herod in his absence. The empire has reached its hand into Jesus' world in a very specific and horrifying way. As we'll see, John has stuck his nose where Herod thinks it doesn't belong. And Herod's going to oblige him by chopping it off for him. But see, I mean, that's the way the empire always responds when people speak the truth about its shady practices, right? I mean, Caesar can't stand to be told that he's not perfect, that he serves only his own best interests, that some see through his shallow promises. And whenever that happens, I mean, you can be sure that somebody's head's pretty soon going to be on a pike. So Matthew tells us that after hearing John's run-in with old King Herod, Jesus withdrew to Galilee. They withdrew. Isn't that lovely? It sounds very orderly and, and dignified, doesn't it? But in fact, the word in Greek means something more urgent. It means to flee. Matthew uses the same word in describing Joseph and Mary taking the baby Jesus and hitting the road to Egypt to escape Herod the Great's wrath. Then, after the Holy Family moves back to Judea, Herod the Great dies, and they hear that his idiot son, Archelaus, is going to be ruling over Judea. And once again, they flee from Judea to Galilee. Later, Jesus hears about John the Baptist's execution and flees himself to the wilderness. In, in each case, the word signifies flight from imperial violence, or at least the potential of it. But it's, it's not like Jesus had an outlaw hideout 
to withdraw to. No, no safe space to flee from the empire. I mean, it's everywhere. Jesus doesn't go into hiding. He's just trying to stay one step ahead of the man. So you see, our passage today opens with great foreboding. John's in jail, and Herod's on the warpath. Nobody's safe. But, as I say, the chaos in the system isn't new for Jews under Roman rule. So that when Matthew draws on the famous Isaiah passage to help set the stage, his illusion is apt. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. And then Matthew says, from that time Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In other words, a light has shone among those huddled in the grim shadow of the empire of illiberalism, the, the empire of poverty and hunger and oppression. This new empire, this new kingdom that Jesus proclaims does not flee. It has no need to withdraw. Instead, it comes near. And the light brought by this new realm has fled not into hiding, but into the very heart of the empire to announce a new realm. In a few short verses, we get a glimpse of what this new realm is going to look like. But, but before we get there, Matthew tells us that Jesus looks to recruit a little help. Jesus says to some potential new disciples, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. But see, here's the kicker. Matthew says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. I mean, it's not, there was no sales pitch, no setting down the salary figures and benefits package, no, no strategic five-year plan, just, hey, you guys, follow me, and they follow. Now, I, I'm not sure quite how to interpret this quick buy-in from the disciples. But what stands out because of the way Matthew tells the story is that apparently things were bad enough in the land that any chance to join up with somebody willing to stand up to the empire proved apparently too tempting to pass up. But what I want to draw your attention to are the kinds of people that Jesus recruits. Not politicians not professionals or academics, not the captains of industry. Jesus appeals first to fishermen. Now, choosing first to go to fishermen doesn't sound especially significant to modern ears, I suspect, until you realize just what kind of social status that fishermen had back in ancient Near Eastern Palestine. When he ranked occupation, Cicero placed first the owners of cultivated land, you know, rich people who were busy swallowing up the subsistence farms of the peasants. <laughs> but fishermen, on the other hand, occupied 
the lowest ranking. Athenaeus suggested that fishermen and fishmongers were the social equivalents of money lenders and were as socially dubious as greedy thieves. <laughs> In other words, Jesus couldn't scrape any lower for disciples in the barrel of respectability than the first four people he calls. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Again, not a very auspicious beginning to a relevant political career. But you see, that's the perfect place to start for a new realm, isn't it? One that challenges the Roman Empire, which is always and only about enriching the people who already sat on top of the food chain. The Roman Empire cared nothing for peasants. The merchants, or those who fished for a living, except how best to pacify them and keep them in line so they didn't cause trouble down at the country club. But this new realm, Jesus announces, is the kind of good news that appeals to everybody else. The other 99%. In fact, the news is, is so good that, according to Matthew, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming it, healing the social, uh, physical, and economic disease in the land. Because this new realm is best exemplified not so much by Jesus' rhetorical gifts, but through his traveling about and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. In other words, the kingdom of heaven concerns itself with healing instead of domination. It seeks out not the most powerful, but the people that everybody else walks past without even noticing. The sick, the poor, the hungry, the houseless, those who've lived virtually every day with the fear of what tomorrow holds for them. As Warren Carter says, Jesus' healings are acts that repair imperial damage and enact God's life-giving realm in restoring people's lives. And this is why the empires of this world will always fail. This is the problem with empire, because their oppression and exploitation are always in the service of the interests of those who have the most already. For a while, the empire appears inevitable, a permanent fixture that will, that will always prevail in its corruption and self-dealing. But the good news that Jesus announces is that the kingdom of heaven has come near and it inspires and empowers those who are willing to stand and confront Caesar, willing to lift their voices for the voiceless, offer healing instead of rejection and scarcity. See, the question for those who would hear Jesus' call today, who, who would drop their nets and follow him, is how will we re re respond when faced ourselves with the kind of imperial violence and subjugation that has always been so popular in our world. I mean, do we make peace with those powers? Do we, do we, do we sell our integrity and our souls for a Scooby snack from Caesar? 
Do we flee searching for a place to hide, or do we follow Jesus into the wilderness to shine our light, to unmask the tempter and the powers of evil? As, as Joel C. Rosenberg asked in his novel, The Auschwitz Escape, the question shouldn't be, why are you, a Christian here in a death camp, condemned for trying to save Jews? The real question is, why aren't all the Christians here? Because we know what the empire is capable of. With all the chaos swirling around us right now, like Viktor Frankl, we know what's at stake. But the good news that we have to offer is that the empire will always fail. That the light will shine in the darkness. That God will create through Jesus a new world and work to establish a realm that looks like heaven here on earth. The question is, are we willing to drop our nets and follow? Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.